We want to turn to the Word of God this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, we're going to look at 12, 31 through 13, 13, and we're continuing along in a series here this morning. This is a six-part series, and the reason why we're doing it this way, we are going through the entire book of 1 Corinthians, but the reason why we're doing it, this section in, in six parts, is because these verses, these chapters, all encompass one context. And so we want to make sure and understand week after week after week this context. And so if you're new here this morning, or if you've missed a few over the last um, month or so, then it's important to understand that what we're looking at is Paul is addressing the, the things within a church that cause us to truly come together for the better. And he's also warning against those things which might cause us to come, to better, uh, come together for the worse. And so really, these words from Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit himself, are meant to uh, give us timeless instructions for maintaining decency and order within the church. Last week, we covered the, I believe it was 16 different spiritual gifts, as well as additional exceptional gifts that we find throughout the entirety of Scripture. But Paul is now going to shift, after explaining those spiritual gifts, he's going to shift, according to 1231, to show us a more excellent way even than the pursuit of spiritual gifts within the church. And so if your Bibles are open, we're going to dig into the Word together. Uh, when the sermon is over, we're going to share communion together. And then we're also going to participate uh, in the spirit of what the early church called a love feast and taking, um, uh, participating in potluck lunch together. And as Chris mentioned, uh, you are all invited to join us. We'd encourage you to join us. There will be plenty of food. People usually uh, over make food so that there's plenty. And so I just want to invite you really just to enjoy a time of fellowship together. And communion is really a, a great time of, of just remembrance. You know, just like Memorial Day, we remember the blood that was spilled so that we could be free to do this. Uh, communion is when we come together to remember the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb who was spilled so that we could be free from sin and so that we could have hope of eternal life with him forever. And so I just enjoy, I want to invite you just to really experience the word of God to really be healed by the Word of God and the truth of His Word, and to really just, just find clarity and truth in, in all that's happening across the world right now, because the Word of God is the standard of truth. It is the plumb line of truth. It is the foundation of truth, and, and that is truly what sets us free from the bondage of, of uh, corruption and evil that can tend to infect and corrupt um, societies and, and minds. And so I just want to invite you here to be healed by God's Word this morning and by His Spirit. So let's pray, and we're going to look into the Word of God. Father, we thank You. We thank You for the church. We thank You, God, for the gift of Your Holy Spirit that is our counselor, that is within every true believer. And I thank You also for the gift of the church, other human people, people who are going through life's problems, who are struggling just as we are struggling, and who can mourn with us when we mourn, who can rejoice when we rejoice. 
I just thank you for a community of, of believers, Lord. What a comfort and encouragement that is. I pray for uh, the portion of our church that is out camping and celebrating with their family and friends this weekend. God, may they, may they remember you in their, in their prayers and their activities. Uh, may they live for you in all that they do. And Father, bring them back safely to us. And Lord, I just thank you for this time we get to fellowship and to study your word and to sing praises to your name and, and uh, take the ordinance, ordinances which you have passed along to us. So God, may this be a, a time of truth, a time of healing, and a time of love. God, may you manifest your love through this place here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So immediately after talking about the various spiritual gifts, Paul shifts gears, and in 1231, he says, I will show you still a more excellent way. So spiritual gifts, especially those which Paul considered to be higher gifts in chapter 12, 28, uh, he talked about first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. He's, he considered, considers these to be higher gifts, and he says that these are to be earnestly desired, but if there's ever a debate or a question about which gifts in the body or the church is the most useful or, or the best or should be honored the most, or if there's any question about that, any fighting about that, ultimately, God puts an end to all debate because he says more superior than any of these ultimately is love. Love is the eternal force that supersedes all spiritual gifts within a church congregation. And so he goes on in verse 1 of chapter 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, that's agape love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have a prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So ultimately, what he's saying here is that love should be the fuel for every gift, and love should be the ultimate goal of every gift, because the gifts in and of themselves are not what matter most. And even though it is good to desire gifts, it is good to understand them, it is good to identify which gifts God has given us, which is why we're going through the spiritual gifts Sunday school class here in a, a few weeks. It's good to do those things, but that's not ultimately the end goal of the gifts themselves. What matters most is what motivates and fuels us to activate those gifts within the church, within our communities. Love should be that fuel. Otherwise, the gifts are meaningless. And they're even and can be counterproductive and harmful, causing us to come together for the worse and not, to, not for the better. Paul gives us in this section three examples of what spiritual gifts are like without love. First of all, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So the gift of tongues without love fueling it is obnoxious. 
That's what he's trying to say. It's like somebody who claims to be a musician but is singing off-key or playing the wrong notes in a band. It just, it's obnoxious, it's annoying, and it's not for the better, it's for the worse. And as I have shared many times growing up in, in the Pentecostal church, I have witnessed many abuses of particularly the exceptional gifts, like the gift of tongues. Uh, oftentimes, as a young man, I, I would see tongues, uh, or so it was called, being used in an unbiblical way. And all it seemed to be was really a self-gratifying performance, uh, self-edifying performance. It was very performative, um, and there was real no demonstration of concern for the entire congregation. And so in that way, for me growing up, I viewed that as just a, a, a banging cymbals and somebody singing off key in a choir. It was just annoying, ultimately. And as I mentioned last week, I do believe tongues does exist for today. I'm not a cessationist, but I believe it exists in specific contexts, which next week when we cover uh, prophecy and the gift of tongues, as Paul does at great length, I'll get into more about what I mean by that. But I primarily believe that, that tongues is meant for frontline missionary work, for new believers or those who are non-believers, as Paul would say, entering into a congregation to learn about Christ. And so um, we'll talk about that next week. I would never forbid tongues so long as it's used in proper biblical fashion. Um, but, and if it's God's will for you to have the gift of tongues, uh, I would pray that that would be fueled by love and not for some desire to be noticed or a performance, but rather that it was genuine and it was coming from the Lord himself. And I'm sure the early church, you know, Paul, as he ministered to them and the people in Corinth, I'm sure he saw many abuses in that way as well. And, and so he recognized that when he speaks this way. But then he also talks about the gift of uh, uh, prophecy, uh, the gift of knowledge or intellectuals or uh, faithfulness. So prophets, intellectuals, the faithful, those who are activating their gifts, but they aren't activating them from the source of love, are ultimately nothing. They mean nothing, and they will be honored for nothing in the use of their gifts if it doesn't come from love. So just as I have had the experience in the Pentecostal church of, the, of abuses of the spiritual gifts, some of you I know I've talked to have had abuses on the other end of things those who are pious in their authority and their teaching, rigid and legalistic in the way that they lead, those who act all snooty and snotty with their nose, noses turned up and their degrees uh, uh, from their colleges put up on their walls where they look down at you from their pulpit as mere peasants who don't understand the truth the way that they understand the truth. Some of you have been raised in such uh, church environments, and so therefore you, you recoil away from such gifts or those who claim to have such gifts. And so those who hold gifts of preaching and teaching and leadership who have such pious attitudes and do it in an unloving way, that causes it to be um, poison to the church, and ultimately God will make sure that they end up being nothing. 
The one person I think of from Scripture is Jonah, who was the reluctant speaker or prophet uh, in Nineveh. Jonah, he wanted the Ninevites to perish. Why? Because they were constantly persecuting Israel. And so when God said, I want you, Jonah, to go and preach the good news to them, preach repentance to them, preach to them to, to turn to me and to believe and be forgiven, Jonah said, no way. And he tried to run all the way to Spain. And we all know how the story goes. We've learned this from childhood. But God threw them into the belly of a great fish and spit them out. And so he reluctantly, after that event, reluctantly went to Nineveh. And when you look at the sermon he gives, it's about two lines long. Essentially, stop your sinning or God is going to smite you. And that's pretty much all it was. He was the most reluctant preacher of all time. He really despised the people he was preaching at. He did not want them to receive it. And so he gave the most minimal sermon he possibly could. Non-convincing. You should probably repent or you're going to die. And then he walked out and he left. And then, even after that, he was still stewing about it. And he was mad at the fact that they received even those words, which is proof that if God is in a sermon, it doesn't matter who's giving it. That God, the Spirit of God is going to work even if the preacher is reluctant or even if the preacher is long-winded. God is going to work through however he wills. And so, people started receiving that message and repenting and turning their face to the Lord. Meanwhile, Jonah, he goes up a hill, he builds this makeshift booth, and he sits in the booth and he stews as he watches Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, and that's where his story ends. We don't know what else happens to Jonah after that fact, but that he's sitting there watching and hoping that God will smite them, and he's hoping to have a front row seat to it. So, such an attitude is an example of what not to do. But such an attitude is also an example that despite you, God will carry out his purposes. But if our preaching, if our teaching, if our prophecy, if our faith is not from a place of love, it's not for the better. At least for us, it's for the worse. Also, charity and sacrifice without love are void. And, you know, some people think by simply giving a lot of money, by checking that box, of, oh, I give this certain amount or I give that certain amount. Some people think by doing that that they're in good standing with God. But if that is your motivation, to simply check a box or to earn some kind of righteousness by how much money you give, that is the wrong attitude. As Chris was mentioning this morning, God loves a cheerful giver. Why? Because he loves those who give out of love, who give for the purpose of love because they love God and they appreciate and they're thankful for what God has done for them because they love their community of believers and because they recognize that all that they have is because God has given it to them. And so, therefore, they cheerfully give. But those who don't give out of a source of love, but who give selfishly for self-advantage or just so they can claim it on their tax returns, that is not a motivation of love. And that is a wrong heart. And it's not for the better, but for the worse. So what it comes down to is that love should always be our default mode. 
If you ever doubt your gift or the gift of others or, or how your gift should be applied, always fall back on just love. Love people. Do the best you can to love and to serve with whatever it is you got. And if you find out, if you go through the spiritual gifts assessment, you find out which gifts that you probably uh, are, are, have or are strong at and which gifts that you are weak at, take that into regard as you learn how to love people better and to live in a community of people. Because love ultimately is the reason for spiritual gifts. Without love, gifts are void. Now, we throw that word around quite a bit, love, especially in this society, and it can be difficult for us to nail down a definition of what love is. Sometimes it feels like you're trying to nail jello to the wall if you're talking with people in the world, because everybody seems to have their own definition of what love is. But I'm only interested in understanding love according to what the Scripture tells us, because again, God's Word is truth, and God it's to define what love is. First of all, it's easy for God to define what love is because the Bible says that God himself is love. God is love. The Greek word used to describe God's love or the deepest known love to man is agape love. And you've heard the, the different Greek expressions of love. You have eros love, you have phileo love. Eros being romantic, phileo being brotherly love, but agape love being godly, sacrificial, completely selfless kind of love. 1 John 4, 7 through 12 says, Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another. God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So if God is love, then therefore godliness is love. Anyone who claims to have God's love in them or claims to be loving another person and it's not coming from a place of godliness and righteousness, that is not love. So Paul, here in 1 Corinthians that we're looking at today, he provides us with this well-known list, oftentimes used at weddings, but is ultimately intended for the church. He gives us this list of what love is and what love is not. Love is not just any kind of action, but gospel actions. Actions that are from the very heart of God and that are consistent with and modeled after the person of Jesus Christ himself. So those who act like Jesus are acting in love. So verse 4 tells us love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth, 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So what I want to do is take this list that Paul gives. And this list might be comprehensive, it might not, but ultimately, if, if you want to know what love is, just look at the life of Jesus Christ. Everything that Jesus did was an act of love, especially the act of laying down his life on the cross. That sacrificial love, which is why every memorial weekend, we can, we can gladly say that those who laid down their life, they demonstrated the highest measure of love that a human being possibly could because they laid down their life for their friend. And whether they were a believer or not, they deserve to be honored for laying down their life for us. Because in that way, they were being like Christ. Now, of course, only Christ alone could lay down his life and result in our salvation for those who believe. Because Christ is the only one who was a perfect sacrificial lamb who knew no sin. Mere men who lay down their lives, mere sinners like you and me. If we, if we lay down our life, we're honored for loving, but we're not honored as perfect. We're not honored as uh, our, our blood counting for the salvation of souls, but rather a salvation for a temporal period in a temporal place for a temporal time. So what I want to do is I want to walk through this list, and I just broke it up into two categories, what love is not and what love is. So let's just briefly walk through this list here together. First of all, what love is not. Love does not envy. So love does not desire to have what other people have when it's not your right to have it. Covetousness is a sin because it's wrapped in jealousy and forfeits contentment, which we're all called to be content with what we have. And, and this is bad news for socialists because socialists ultimately are envious of what other people have. And they want to take the what the person has earned uh, and pass that among everybody else forcefully at gunpoint. And so socialism is envious. Socialism is unloving. And there are also aspects of, of every kind of uh, socioeconomic system you can think of. There's unloving aspects to all of them. But socialism leading to communism is one of the most unloving the world has ever seen. James 4.2 says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The reason why envy is not loving is because it leads to hate and division and bitterness, sometimes to murder, but ultimately fighting. And so envy is not loving. Love is not envy. Number two, love does not boast. So excessively bragging about achievements, possessions, or good deeds is unloving because it motivate, its motives are self-centered and self-glorifying and usually causes contempt for others. Now, an example of this we see in uh, Luke 18, 10 through 14, Jesus tells this parable. It says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, 
extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, this is a big problem, uh, especially with the advent of social media. And there's something called the humble brag, where people kind of inadvertently are bragging or boasting, especially about their possessions or even their achievements from time to time. So this would be like somebody who said, oh, I'm so sick and tired of having this huge house because of all the windows that I have to wash in this house. So in other words, you're, you're complaining about your massive giant mansion, uh, but you're doing it in a way that reveals that you have a giant mansion only in what you think people might perceive as a negative because you have to wash all the windows, right? Modern problem kind of thing. Like, oh, man, I love this brand new diesel truck that I got, but boy, it's, it's, the gas is expensive. You know, you have pictures of yourself in front of your truck, you know, and you're, you're, you're passing it off as you're complaining about it, but really you're just trying to show it off. You know, so social media has, has really enhanced people's uh, boasting. And I think if we're honest about it, we're, we're all guilty of this. We all like to share our achievements and our, our new things that we purchase, or we like to be the first to tell you that we went to go see Top Gun, and here's my review, you know. Um, but that's not loving. It's self-centered. And it causes contempt. And so love does not boast. Next, love is not arrogant. Arrogant people, directly or indirectly, love to make others feel inadequate or small because ultimately it makes themselves feel good. Colossians 2, 16 through 18, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, which is severe self-discipline, and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So what often happened in the early church was that when somebody had a certain gift that was honored in, in that culture more than others, like the gift of teaching or prophecy or whatever, that that person would develop an arrogant attitude about it. Or that they would ultimately, uh, through their asceticism, through their extreme desire to be rigidly righteous about every single thing, that they would be arrogant in that. They would turn their nose at people who didn't do things exactly the way that they did things. And if you've ever experienced that, you know it's, it's not coming from a place of love. You're not feeling the love when people are acting that way towards you, that arrogant way. And love is also not rude. Uh, this word here ultimately means dishonorable or indecent behavior. So telling coarse jokes or acting in a way that's, that's uh, disrespectful or um, offensive. So earlier, Paul talked about the, uh, the rudeness of prolonging an engagement with a young virgin woman. 
you know, just stringing her along during the prime of her availability years. Um, that's, a, that's considered to be rude. The same word is used. That's indecent behavior. That's dishonorable. Next, love does not insist on its own way. And this, in, this ties in with arrogance because people who are arrogant tend to think that they're always right or that they always do things the best possible way. But as we've learned, there's multiple ways to skin a cat, right? In most cases. There are multiple ways to do things, but the arrogant people think that their way is the only way. And so therefore, they insist that that is the only way it can be done. Without taking into consider that somebody else could possibly have an equal or better way. So love ultimately leads us to listen and to consider the insights and the opinions of other people. Uh, Love does not take a matter-of-fact attitude towards everything, but rather is willing to, to hear what other people have to say and sometimes even willing to go along with what their idea might be. And I do like to use this passage of, of Scripture in marriage counseling, which after this service here, I, I have a marriage counseling that I'm uh, leading. And I like to talk about this between couples because usually between couples, there's one, either the husband or the wife, who insists on their own way all the time and makes it a point in their life to get their way and what they want. And the other person, typically for the sake of peace, just not wanting to fight, is willing just to go along with that way because the other person is very passionate about getting it their way. And so the only way you're going to live in a marriage without fighting is if you just say, all right, fine, we'll do it your way, whatever. But love, and if, if you're that way in your marriage, I'd encourage you to be loving to your spouse and maybe for once, just for once, Ask them, where would you like to go on vacation? What would you like to do this evening? Whatever you choose. I'd I'd like to do that thing with you. Because it's loving to do that. And also, when they tell you where they'd like to go and what they'd like to do, don't then come in and try and manipulate all the little details of it. Allow them to, to share what they ought to do. Uh, Next, love is not irritable. This has to do with being easily angered or easily distressed. Here's another thing. It's, It's miserable to live, to fellowship with people, to try and work with people who are easily angered, where you feel like you're constantly walking on eggshells, where if you just say the wrong thing, man, you set them off and you can't get them back down. And then you're just kind of hiding in a corner somewhere until they cool down. What a miserable way to live your life. What a miserable way to work in ministry. What a miserable way to work in the world, to work with such people. It's not loving to be that way. So this is why the Bible over and over again tells us not to be easily angered. Love is not resentful. So when you wrong others over harbored feelings of of feeling or being wronged, this is unloving as well. Because if if you're truly loving like Christ is loving, then you're speaking the truth. And sometimes truth is hard. 
Sometimes it's hard to say what you really think. Sometimes it's hard to sit down with that spouse who has to have it their way all the time and say, I'm really not happy in this relationship because you're not listening to what my wants and my needs are. All you want to do is do what you want to do. It's hard because you know it's going to be a fight. You, You know that you're going to spend the evening fighting over this, and hopefully you can settle it before the sun goes down, right? But sometimes it it just bleeds into the week. And who has time for that, honestly? Who has time for that? And that's usually what happens, right, is is that because of lack of time, usually we're just like, I'm I'm not going to say anything. And instead what you do is just the bitterness and the resentfulness grows. And it becomes a cancer until eventually it explodes and you sin. And so it's unloving to harbor bitterness and to not settle these things. It's also unloving um, to rejoice at wrongdoing. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. So love does not celebrate sin. The Bible is, is very clear about what sin is and sin is not. And so when we celebrate sin, when we honor sin, when we take a passive attitude towards sin, that is unloving. So if you see a family member, if you see a, especially a fellow believer who is trapped in a sin or who is practicing a sin, and you say nothing, that is unloving. And especially, it's very unloving if you congratulate them in your sin. You know, an obvious example of this in our society today is the LGBTQ plus community where we've known many people uh, who have gone down that path, uh, especially the, the trans community these days. And as Christians, it is our role and our job in the church to confront sin. And of course, we're to do it in a loving manner, not, a, not an arrogant manner, not a pious manner, but in humility we, and in love, we approach our brothers or our sisters who are caught up in a sin, who are being convinced of a sin, and we tell them the truth. We tell them the truth of the Scriptures. And we warn them. You know, if, if, there's, if there's anything loving that Jonah did is that he, he ultimately did spew out a warning. But as Paul says, what job of, of it is ours to judge the world? It's not. Our, our job as believers is to is to correct each other, to sharpen each other. Anybody professing to be a Christian living in sin has opened themselves up for correction. But those who say, I hate God, I don't believe in God, I hate Jesus, I hate church, and I hate you. Such a person, I mean, you you really have no place to to harass with, with the gospel. Sure, you want to look for opportunity to share the gospel when their hearts are open to it. Or if God just presents a, a moment where, where you can share with them the gospel, you take advantage of that. But as far as being somebody who, who comes and knocks at their door or, or gives them a call and tells them to stop sinning, that's ultimately not the place of the church. Because if they don't believe in the Scripture as God authority, uh, God's authoritative word, or they don't believe in God at all, then you really have no basis for your argument for them to stop sinning if they don't even recognize sin. 
So as believers, if we love people, we will tell them the truth. And we will do so um, with salt, like Christ did. All right, so the next category is what love is. So those were all the what love is not. These are all the what love is. Love is patient. Think of the way that God is patient. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some would count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So when we talk about the world and sharing the gospel with the world, He tells us to be patient as He was patient with us. I mean, how many of us struggled for years living in sin, not really caring about honoring God, but then can say today that God was patient with me and it paid off. That I am sitting here or I'm standing here today because of God's patience with me. The fact that he spared me time and again from all the situations that should have ended my life and sent me straight to hell, God has spared me and he has been patient with me. And he has brought me along. And even when, when I came into maturity and I failed again, he was still patient with me. And he still walked with me. So consider that. Never lose hope. If you have family members who have been lost in a life of sin or are lost in a life of sin, patiently pray for them and, and demonstrate God's love to them to the best of your ability, even if they've shut you out of, the, out of your life. Pray for them. Love them. Never give up. Always be patient because that is love. That is God's love. Love is kind. Luke 6.35 says, Love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Is it hard for you to be kind to your annoying neighbor? You know, to, if you see him struggling out in the field and he's working and, and you know that he could use another hand, and, but you know that if you go over there and talk to him, he's going to complain about this or that or he's just going to drive you crazy or, or you know, maybe he, he did something to wrong you. Kindness, motivated by love, drives us to go out into that field to offer him a hand. Kindness is from God. God is kind even to the ungrateful and to the evil. And so should we be. Love rejoices with the truth. Psalm 119, 160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Proverbs 35 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. As believers, we should delight in the word of God. We should love his word as Old Testament kings and prophets cherished the word of God. And yeah, I, I admit, you know, sometimes as I try and do a daily devotion, and I'm even listening to the devotion while I'm exercising or whatever, it can be difficult, especially in the Old Testament. When you're going through the numbers and the uh, first and second Samuel, there, there's some portions that I just tune out. I'll be perfectly honest with you. And then I have to catch myself and think, oh man, I need to be paying attention. This is God's word. But ultimately, when we know the truth of God, we should rejoice in that and celebrate his truth. And that even means 
the truth that those who die in their sin will perish for all eternity in a place called hell. Because that is the truth. And that brings honor and glory to God's name. Why? Because that demonstrates that God is just and that God fulfills his promises. Even the negative promises, which are that if you don't confess and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you will die in your sins and that you will spend an eternity separated from God and from his love. And so we rejoice in that because it's true. It's God's truth. But that should also motivate us, shouldn't it? To pray patiently and fervently for unbelievers. We should pray. Love bears all things. 1 Corinthians 9.12 says, We have not made use of this right, which is compensation for ministry work, financial compensation, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So as Paul was ministering, as he was preaching to all these different places, uh, as an apostle of Jesus, you know, he could have demanded that right that they pay for his way to stay there and to continue to minister the gospel. But he didn't. He endured all things because he knew if he made that a point of contention that that might cause an already weak body of believers to stumble even further. And so he denied himself that right. And he decided to bear underneath that. So forfeiting your right or putting up with an injustice towards you personally, um, ultimately is loving. And for the sake of the gospel, not just bearing under it, just, just for the sake of, so you can, uh, you can say that you're a victim, you know, that whole victim mentality. Some people like to do that, especially in today's culture, uh, younger people especially. Uh, they like to bear under injustice so that they can always have that victim card handy because it gets some free stuff. It gets some special attention. So bearing all things, however, for the sake of the gospel, bearing under injustice for the sake of the gospel is a good and loving thing. Also, love believes all things. Proverbs 14.15, the simple believe everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. So believes all thing obviously is not encouraging gullibility but can be understood as meaning to trust God, uh, trust that all good things come from God. Do you believe that good things can come out of this school shooting in Texas? Why do we believe that? We believe that because of the Word of God, right? The Word of God says that God works for the good of all those who are called according to His purposes. So we know that God is going to, to weave something good out of all this, even though it's an incredible tragedy. And that ought to be our mindset in all things, that as bad as things might get, and I can tell you, um, I don't know if I'm a prophet or not, but they're going to get worse. Things are going to get worse. If this, can, if this country, if the West continues to turn their backs on God and turn away from God, I am a student of biblical history, and throughout redemptive history, every time Israel 
had turned their back on God, welcomed in other gods, started participating in socially sinful things, then God ultimately turned his back on them, allowing their enemies to come in to take them into captivity until they were finally humble again and turned back to the Lord. This happened over and over and over again with the Israelites. It happened with the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and obviously uh, the, the Romans, and then the Germans. I mean, over and over and over again, when God's people turn their back on God, ultimately he gives them up to their enemies. And I can tell you, it very much seems like the West, the United States of America, founded on biblical principles, have turned our backs on God, and I can see him removing his hand of protection, which is why things like school shootings and things like that are happening. It has nothing to do with guns. It has nothing to do with all this stuff. It has to do with the sin in this country and across the West. And we can expect evil things like this to happen and to continue to happen. Why? Because God is releasing his hand of protection. And I just pray to God that none of you and your families are collateral damage to the sins of this nation. Because as we've seen through redemptive history, that even those who lived faithfully sometimes became collateral damage to a society who has turned its back on God. But the difference is, if you are a faithful believer, even if this stuff is hitting the fan, then your belief is in God's ultimate good, that God is working out all things according to his purposes, and that if you believe in him, they might kill your body, but they can't kill your soul, and you will be with him in paradise. So love believes all things. All good things come from God. Love hopes all things. Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Our hope is in him. Our hope is in heaven. Maintaining that hope is loving. Love also endures all things. And this is the idea of perseverance. So perseverance means to remain steadfast in the face of unpleasant circumstances. So you consider Christ. Before he went to the cross, he, he prayed in, in what was like blood coming from his face, and he, he pleaded with the Father that he would let this cup of suffering pass. But ultimately, Christ persevered to the cross, even though it was very unpleasant. He persevered. And when we persevere, that's a demonstration of love as well. Finally, he says, love never ends. And this kind of brings up his, his primary point, is that love is eternal. Love will not pass away. Love goes on forever. Why? Because God is love. God is eternal. All godly things go on forever. So we ought to genuinely attempt to imitate Jesus in his life, in his ministry. If you can't remember these two lists of eight, then just remember this. Live like Christ, and you'll be living in love. And then he wraps it up with this last section, starting, uh, continuing in verse 8. He says, As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. 
When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So spiritual gifts will not last. We need to be careful about... Oh, quiet, Siri. Got to turn her down. I don't know how to turn her off. Yeah, I turned her down. So spiritual gifts will not last, but love is eternal. The church should ultimately strive for perfection when it comes to love. Now, Paul gives examples here. He says prophecy will pass away. He says tongues will pass away. He says knowledge will pass away. But what does he mean by this? When will they pass away? Well, he says when the perfect comes. What does he mean by the perfect? Well, my first thought goes to, well, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's, that's the only time when things will be perfect here on earth. But then you go even further. The new heavens and the new earth. Will there be absolute absence of, of evil and wickedness? And ultimately, the, the church, the bride, will be with their bridegroom, Christ, in heaven. That, that seems like the perfect, right? But when we look at Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, and I, I have that up here. Read this with me now. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, seeking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So I want you to notice here that mature from this passage is the same exact Greek word used for perfect in 1 Corinthians 13.10. And so the idea here is ultimately Christian maturity. Now, will the church, any church, any local church, ever reach absolute perfect Christian maturity? No. Is it true that perhaps some local gatherings are more mature than others? Right? I mean, you've been to a lot of different churches in your lifetime. Are, are there some who, who really are exercising love and, and, and gifts of the Spirit in, in a little more mature capacity than others? Yeah, I, I've been to very immature churches in my life. I've been to mature churches and everything in between. Now, when I, when I look at what Paul is saying here, both in Ephesians and Corinthians, I think what he's saying is that certain gifts are meant for more immature gatherings of believers. And once that church or that gathering of believers enters into a, a certain 
area of maturity in how they're, they're loving one another, then those gifts are no longer necessary. Now again, I am not a cessationist. I believe all the gifts of the Spirit are for all time during the church age. But I do think that certain gifts, and I would say especially the exceptional gifts, are not ultimately necessary for accomplishing God's purposes among a body of believers once they reach a point of maturity. I think the exceptional gifts are, are absolutely uh, needed when it comes to especially missionary work overseas, things like that. Because unbelievers oftentimes need that miracle or that healing or that gift of tongues or that prophecy to enlighten them to the word of God and to his truth or to convince him that his word is true. Now, those of us who, have, who are uh, faithful believers, and we have no doubt in our mind that Jesus is Lord, we're convinced that this is his word and we are convinced to live by it. We don't necessarily need the, the gifts or the, the signs and the wonders to convince us. Our faith is already mature. But some people who are less mature in their faith and often wrestle with doubt sometimes need that miraculous healing or sometimes need that example of tongues or you see what I'm trying to say. But again, ultimately it comes down to this fact that, that all these things that we're talking about comes down to love. Because for now we see in, in what's like a, a dim mirror. And during the time of the first century in Corinth, they were famous for their bronze mirrors. Now, have you ever looked at a bronze mirror? Not very clear, right? Not like the mirrors today where you have those super high ultra uh, lights that are shining on your face and you can see every zit for miles on your face, right? And, and it makes you very self-conscious because you can see so clearly. But for now, we see things as through a bronze mirror. We don't see all the details. We see the, uh, some of the things. But as we grow into maturity, we start to see things more clearly. And ultimately, when we do come into the absolute perfect, which is heaven, we will see things crystal clear. And then he closes on this. There's three things, faith, hope, and love. And both faith and both hope are expressions of love, which Paul previously listed. So love and all of its expressions are a more excellent way than gifts. And so it's important as believers that we prioritize these things. That yes, we should earnestly, as Paul says in the next section, earnestly desire the gifts. Earnestly desire to be a participant in what God is doing in, in church ministry and across the world. Earnestly desire to be a part of maturing your fellow believers and maturing the local congregation of believers. But at the end of the day, love is always superior. Love is the end goal of gifts. And if your gift is not producing love or is not being used in a loving way, then it's meaningless. And your work is meaningless. So we must start with love. And what better way to do that than we're going to celebrate communion here this morning together.